0: This week, can economy and environment live happily ever after?
1: Perhaps the most important thing we're doing is uh, providing uh, some encouragement that, that it's, it, it's worth imagining a different future.
2: And water droplets that look like they're breaking the laws of physics.
3: Initially, we were extremely surprised, but you know what? You're being fooled. You know, there's a there's a trick happening there.
0: Plus, how to wrangle all the data streaming from our internet-enabled objects. This is the Nature podcast for November the fifth. 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And
2: I'm Adam Levy.
0: Now, you get to see some strange stuff working at Nature, and I'm not just talking about the news team first thing in the morning. But Sharmini Bundell claims to have seen something even weirder, evidence of water droplets that bounce by themselves. Now, I'm sure there's got to be a sensible scientific explanation for this.
2: Either that or it's magic.
0: Well, I suppose it's definitely one of those two options. So to find out which, we asked Sharmini to investigate. She called up Thomas Stutzius of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, otherwise known as ETH Zurich, and got him to describe the results of his bouncing water droplet experiment.
3: So what you initially see is a droplet uh, at rest, and then all of a sudden you see a spontaneous first jump. So you see the droplet really just levitates very suddenly, and then comes back down and hits the same surface again, and then it bounces even higher. So with each time that the droplet is coming in contact with the surface, it's bouncing higher and higher.
4: And this was actually supposed to be an experiment on changing air pressure around a droplet of water that you've placed on a superhydrophobic surface. That's a surface whose structure is specially designed to repel water.
3: These superhydrophobic surfaces, some people might be familiar with these lotus leaves. Um, What they do is they're a series of hills and valleys and each of these valleys is filled with air so the droplet sits on these hills and it rolls around freely on it.
4: So you weren't at all expecting your droplet to start bouncing up and down?
3: No absolutely not.
4: Because so. when you look at it 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 it's perfectly still it seems to be bouncing up and down by itself higher and higher each time with no apparent energy being added. Have you found a way to break the second law of thermodynamics?
3: No, we have not. Initially, we were extremely surprised, but you know what, you're being fooled. You know, there's a, there's a trick happening there. Um, and it turns out that this trick was had to do with the evaporation of the, the droplet there.
4: So how did you work out what was really going on?
3: We had some ideas about the fact that the droplet, you know, if it's being accelerated from the surface, you must have a pressure there. If you have a pressure there, uh, you must have a gap where the vapour is trying to drain and it can't get out.
4: Right, so there's a, there's a very small gap underneath the droplet. And when, exactly. the, when the water there starts turning into a gas, then it's obviously going to be expanding. Exactly. And, that, and that's what's sort of pushing, creating the pressure to push the droplet up.
3: Precisely. So
4: th- I can understand how the vapour um, is sort of creating a pressure to push the water droplet up, but why does it keep going and getting higher and higher?
3: So when you're on a trampoline and you're jumping, right, you see that when the person or when you yourself start, each time... You know, you get a little bit higher and higher each time, even though you may only be applying the same force, okay? The same thing's happening probably in this case too. You know, so the the droplet itself is conserving uh, some amount of momentum after each impact, and then it's just getting accelerated a little bit more each time it hits the surface.
4: And have you actually been using people jumping on trampolines to study this?
3: Yes, we have. There's a gymnasium here at uh, ETH, and sure enough, on Wednesday nights, I think they... They have a a gymnastics club, and we shot a video of uh, uh, one of the students from the university in Zurich here to to do some jumping for us, so some trampolining. And when you
4: put the trampoline videos next to the water droplet videos, you saw sort of the same kind of pattern of of jumping.
3: Yeah, it's surprising how similar they, they really are. I mean, it is an analogy in the end. I don't want to try to say that we gleaned too much new physics or any new physics out of you know, putting them next to each other, but that analogy sticks with you.
4: So, so this particular experiment looks very cool, but why actually were you studying water droplets on hydrophobic surfaces?
3: What we primarily study in the lab here is ice-phobicity. So that is surfaces which repel or resist ice formation on them, uh, which is important for aviation, uh, wind energy harvesting, things like this.
4: So things where, if ice formed on them, they would not work properly.
3: They wouldn't work properly. They could reduce efficiency, or more importantly, potentially uh, result in dangerous situations. So safety issues.
4: So I can see why um, hydrophobic surfaces can be pretty useful. But what about these these particular bouncing droplets?
3: You could imagine that you know normally what you rely on is that droplets would uh, roll, you know, to get off the surface. But in this case, with the bouncing droplets or droplets that naturally vaporise, they kind of self-remove. So they don't need any external force applied to them. But I would like to qualify that with saying that the pressures that we were studying here were relatively low and not close to uh, a reality.
4: Because you've created very specific conditions in the lab that makes this happen, but they wouldn't usually go around bouncing by themselves.
3: Precisely. Normally in in real life, uh, you would not experience such low pressure conditions.
4: But apart from your area of research, is there anything else we can use bouncing droplets for? Can we harness them as tiny engines providing endless kinetic energy?
3: I wish. We did the calculations and they're not great. So I don't think you'll be seeing any kind of motors anytime soon. We, of course, did make a small one for the work where we connected the droplet to a a simple uh, metal cantilever. And then that droplet was in contact with the surface and we show that you can, in fact, make mechanical motion with it, but it's, I, wouldn't, I don't think you're going to be making any, uh, powering any iPhones with it anytime soon.
4: No tiny ant cities with amazing machines?
3: I don't know, maybe, maybe, I, but I, we'd have to talk to the ants. So
0: That was Thomas Schutzius explaining to Sharmini Bundel why the results of his recent paper won't be changing ant civilization anytime soon. You can find the paper at nature.com slash nature, where there are also some videos
2: of the droplets. There's also a News & Views article at the same place. Coming up, everything from your fridge to your spectacles may soon be internet-enabled. How should we manage all that data? But before that, to Australia, where researchers from the National Research Agency have been acting as fortune-tellers for their country. They've been trying to predict the future, but they have a computer model instead of a crystal ball, and their tarot cards are the economy and the environment. Marion Turner is on hand to explain their methods.
5: The team produced dozens of different scenarios, with variations in how long people will work, how much they'll earn, whether the land will be used for crops or forests, where energy will come from, how much CO2 will be produced, and much, much more. The data are a bit overwhelming, but the bottom line seems to be that Australia can be both economically successful and environmentally sustainable. Here's lead author Steve Hatfield Dodds to explain.
1: In some senses, that's the essence of the paper, that you, you do have to make choices, but the implications of those choices aren't nearly as big as most people think.
5: You've looked at the relationship between economy and environment using Australia as a case study. Before you tell us what you predicted for the future, um, could you fill us in a little bit on what Australia's like now?
1: So Australia is an interesting country that sort of sits between uh, the developed world, the OECD countries, and resource-producing low-income countries, but we have a very large uh, mining sector and, and lots of energy-intensive industry. Uh, we're very export-focused, so, so uh, a large amount of the food we produce is exported, a large amount of the energy, uh, fossil fuels we mine. Where we have a high environmental pressure at home uh, because we're serving the needs of other countries.
5: Your model's an ambitious effort to capture a lot of factors surrounding both Australia's economy and its environment. Tell me a little bit about how you modelled that.
1: So the modelling framework links together nine models. So three of the nine set the global scene and then the other other six models uh, do detailed analysis of things like agricultural land use, uh, electricity generation, biodiversity and the, the economy as a whole.
5: You look towards 2050. What possible outcomes did you find?
1: The key finding is that you get economic growth across all the scenarios, and it varies a bit primarily because of differences in working hours, but the range is really quite narrow. Um, So income increases substantially, but the environmental indicators are all over the place. Some of them are doubling in many cases. In other cases, the environmental pressure is falling below zero, so you're actually repairing past damage. And how that happens... It is different for each specific case, but essentially uh, it's about getting the the settings right uh, to mobilise the right technologies. And when you do that, you, you break the links between the environmental pressure and the environmental damage and the service you want. So emissions fall while energy goes up. Water stress is stable or falling while water use goes up.
5: So you're saying that Australia could keep mining and keep using fossil fuels, keep using heavy industry, keep being a massive exporter, but somehow still reduce its environmental footprint?
1: So, so we certainly find that our material-intensive industries can uh, maintain a major share of the economy. We actually find that they grow in most, in most cases in, in value terms. Um, but the detail under the hood would change. So, yes, uh, energy-intensive industry but in some scenarios that we're shifting to renewable power that's driving those industries. Things like biodiversity loss, which is irreversible, uh, like uh, pumping uh, carbon into the atmosphere, which is extremely risky at this point of human history, Uh, there are a couple of crucial things that we need to watch uh, really carefully. And and what the analysis shows is is if you've got your eye on the ball, there are technology options which we know how to mobilise and they can make... A huge difference,
5: but that's a real change in mindset. What would be needed to set Australia on that sort of path?
1: The policies that we're modelling are policies that people have been talking about for decades, and that have been trialled in Australia and overseas. There's a, a significant um, cohort in, in the sustainability debate who basically argue that sustainability is so big and so challenging uh, that we need a change in social values. Our analysis finds that's not a precondition. Perhaps the most important thing we're doing is uh, providing uh, some encouragement that that it's it's worth imagining a different future.
5: That was Steve Hatfield-Dodds from Australia's National Research Agency, the CSIRO. Steve says that he and his team are already in discussion with other countries, particularly the US, about using this modelling approach to predict their own futures. Nature's own future guru, editor Patrick Guimer, has been listening to this. Patrick, what do you think about this quite possibly utopian picture of a sustainable future?
6: Um, Well, I was a little bit surprised because most of the messages we get in this area are fairly doom and gloom, or they demand that we do things far more revolutionary and fundamental than this paper seems to imply. So in some ways, it was refreshing that in some scenarios, Australia can achieve sustainability without fundamentally changing too many things that are going to discomfort its population or going to prove very politically unpopular. That said, there are a few caveats, and one of them would be the assumption that we're going to achieve a price for carbon, a global price for carbon um, soon, and, and, and they model trajectories of how that's going to change. If that's overly optimistic, some of their scenarios might be overly optimistic. But then there might be other areas in which they're overly pessimistic. They don't re- they, they're really assuming that we're not going to change our our behaviour very much. If we manage to change our behaviour in terms of what we consume, what we eat, we might do better in those areas. But what they what they provided here is a is a, it's a useful sort of bottom line. This feasibly, these are the kinds of scenarios that might work out. It's a comprehensive national level look.
2: Thanks to our very own Australian model citizen, Marion Turner, who is talking to Nature editor Patrick Goimer and researcher Steve Hatfield-Dodds. The paper is at nature.com forward slash nature, where you'll also find our news and views.
0: The podcast listener survey is still open over at podcast-survey.com. Just a few simple questions so we can find out a little more about our listeners. Do fill it out and you could win £200 worth of Amazon vouchers. That link again,
2: podcast-survey.com. Coming up in the news, the science that Silicon Valley investors are throwing money at this year. And in the research highlights, Curry Locke has stories of melting ice and hunted woolly mammoths.
0: Now, though, over to Noah, who's been
7: trying to get his head around the Internet of Things. My phone tells me how many steps I've taken every day. I only just recently found this out. I have to say, I was a little surprised and kind of creeped out that, for almost a year, my telephone has been recording data about my movements without me even knowing. But according to Dirk Helbing of ETH Zurich in Switzerland, this is just a taste of where we're headed.
8: Basically technology, be it a coffee machine, a fridge, a toothbrush, everything, including our clothes, might be equipped with sensors,
7: Dirk refers to this growing list of internet-enabled objects as the internet of things, and it's set to generate a lot of data.
8: In the past, we had a situation where data doubles every 12 months, which has the amazing implication that within just one year's time, we're producing as much data as in the entire uh, history of humanity. Now, In a few years' time, because of the Internet of Things, data will double every 12 hours.
7: We can't hope to process all of this data, says Helbing, but it does provide a valuable opportunity.
8: Well, for sure we can learn much more about our environment, our world, what causes the problems that we have and how to go about them. So there are a lot of potentials from smart cities uh, to personalised medicine and all these kind of things. So there are certainly amazing opportunities, but we could also do terrible mistakes if we use these technologies in the wrong way.
7: For instance, think about how information reaches you now. It's been filtered by your Google search or your Facebook news feed. We need it filtered, otherwise we wouldn't find anything. But as more and more personal information reaches the internet, it could be used in the wrong way.
8: At the moment, this is being done for us by companies or by institutions of all kinds. And we have a very limited influence on this. We have no idea what the quality of this information is and to what extent we're being manipulated. And in fact, uh, there's quite some evidence now that personalised information is being used to manipulate our choices and our behaviour. And the question is, is this a good or a bad thing? It could be good
7: because it helps us learn about ourselves, but it could be bad if private companies try to use it for their own ends. Helbing imagines a future where all our data is recorded and filtered by individual organisations, and he doesn't like it.
8: Well, in the moment where every single step, every single word we're saying is recorded, it's kept forever, it's controlled by companies or other institutions, it can be used to manipulate us, we would use our freedom of choice. Uh, We would uh, lose the possibility to to see the world in an unbiased way, uh, to take independent decisions.
7: Instead, Helbing imagines a kind of Wikipedia for all this new information.
8: I think what we need to build is sufficiently open systems that allow us to run our own information filters so we could inform ourselves. But before we get to this stage,
7: there's another barrier to overcome. Most of this big data, even if we collected ourselves with our exercise plans or our driving directions, it belongs to someone else. But Helbing doesn't think this will last forever.
8: I think there will be soon a new data protection law that um, will regulate informational self-determination and that will require that... Users are given the possibility to copy data that have been created about them and use them for their own purposes.
7: Even if this data becomes available, that's just the first step.
8: First of all, we need to have access to the data in order to be able to do our own filtering and look at the data from our own perspective. So, for example, as a scientist, Of course, we are swamped with a lot of new publications, right? And the question is which publications should I pay attention to and read? Now, I could use different kinds of filters. I could use a filter that shows me the most popular papers, the most downloaded ones. I could ask for the most controversial ones. I could also use a surprise filter. So there are many filters one could think of uh, to suggest me papers to read and I would like to be able to add my own filters, share them with my colleagues and friends. Uh, they would uh, want to be able to modify them to improve them further. This is exactly what we need such an ecosystem of filters that allows us um, to make better and better use of this data deluge that is surrounding us.
7: Helbing himself is working on a system like this. It's called NervousNet, and it aims to give all users access to the kinds of data that the Internet of Things could provide, but in a transparent, customizable, and controllable way. Initially, it'll use data from the kinds of sensors you find in a smartphone, just like the ones which have been recording my steps. According to Helbing, how we choose to organise the Internet of Things could reflect the choices we make about our wider society.
8: And the question is, how will our society be organised? Will it be controlled in a top-down way or will it empower people to take better decisions? Will we still have democracies or not? These are the kinds of questions that are basically on the table.
2: That was Dirk Helbing, who is also at ETH Zurich, talking to Noah. Nearly time for the news chat, but first the research highlights that you know and love. Here's Curry luck.
9: Elephants are voracious herbivores and can flatten forests if their populations grow unchecked. So, millions of years ago... When woolly mammoths roamed the Earth in much larger numbers, how did Earth's forests manage to survive all that grazing? To find out, researchers analyzed data on the relative sizes of modern predators and prey. They compared that data with fossil specimens. The team estimated that long-extinct carnivores like saber-toothed cats and huge hyenas were big enough to take down young mammoths and mastodons, enough to control their populations. The study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. If climate change caused by humans continues at its relentless pace, Arctic coastal regions could be covered in ice for only half the year by about the 2070s. Today, most of these areas are covered for more than half the year, and in some places, all year round. Researchers mapped changes in the Arctic's open water season since pre-industrial times and used computer models to predict future shifts. They found that starting in the 1990s, ice breakups started happening earlier in the year and freeze up began later. You can find the paper in the journal Nature Climate Change.
0: This week's news chat is brought to you by Erica Check Hayden in San Francisco. Hi Erica. Hi Kerry. Now, the tech investors of Silicon Valley, they get excited about things from time to time, different trends. What is it in science that they are excited about at the moment?
10: Well, this year, they seem very excited about synthetic biology. It's interesting because this is an area of biology that involves engineering uh, microorganisms to do useful things like make materials or fuels or other ingredients. Um, In the past, it's been a bit of a hard sell uh, for lots of investors, not just tech investors, I think, because... The space has sort of struggled to deliver a useful, profitable product. Um, But recently, thanks to a number of trends, um, the tech investors are becoming interested. And so this year alone, synthetic biology companies have raised more than $560 million, which is more money than they've ever raised in any previous year. Um, There's a lot of startups being formed, more than 20 this year alone. And a lot of the money for this is coming from tech investors.
0: And why is it now that they're keen on this when previously, as you
10: said, they haven't really been super hot? There's a couple of reasons. One is that the synthetic biology companies themselves are coming up with much better business plans. So in the past, I think when the industry started, Companies went after the really big markets, like fuels and pharmaceuticals, mostly fuels and that turned out to be a really difficult market for a number of reasons, like you know that governments subsidize a lot of that production and that it 's very hard to break into. So the synthetic biology companies themselves are moving into spaces that are easier to break into and where they can deliver products more quickly. So this is often more niche markets like flavors, fragrances, specialty chemicals, Um, things like that, materials. And so that's one reason why the tech investors are becoming interested because it's much shorter time from the formation of a company to the time that they're making revenue. Another reason is that synthetic biology has undergone this shift um, as has most of biology, where it's possible to do things much more cheaply thanks to a combination of robotics and information technology. It makes the companies much better able to achieve this dream in synthetic biology of engineering systems that do useful things. So there are really good business reasons, as you say, for this
0: this kind of trend popping up. Part of me wonders if they just get this a bit more than they did before. It seemed a bit wet and squishy and now it's all computational and robotics and technology and they, they just understand this frame better.
10: I think there's definitely a factor where um, biology seems complex and complicated if you're not familiar with it. But once you bring in the ability to use software, very effectively to engineer these biological systems. And it starts to look more like the type of engineering problem that tech investors are more used to. So some of them did tell me, yes, this looks more like an industry that we understand. Can you give me a couple of examples, perhaps,
0: of the companies you'll be watching and and maybe even who's funding them?
10: Sure. So one interesting company is Twist Biosciences, which has raised $80 million from investors, including um, Yuri Milner, who was the story. Russian billionaire internet investor. Um, They are making synthetic DNA. They have a process that uses silicon that they say makes it much faster and cheaper than existing processes. Um, There's another company called Zymergen, which is combining robotics and information technology to design better microbes for industrial processes. They've raised more than $40 million from investors such as, Google chairman Eric Schmidt and the venture capital firm Obvious Ventures, co-founded by Twitter co-founder Evan Williams. So those are just a few of the companies and their investors that are getting into the space. This is
0: the internet great and the good, isn't it? Investing in uh, synthetic biology, it seems. What are these guys likely to be interested in next? Now, they've, now they're have now they looking towards biology. Is there any,
10: anything else you think they've got their eye on? I think that there's a general movement of Silicon Valley to move into the health and medical sectors at large. There's definitely been an avoidance of biotech in the past. Um, among these investors because it is so expensive and so risky. I mean, at the end of the day, if your drug fails after you've poured hundreds of millions of dollars into it, there's not much that you can do, and you're always sort of dependent on you know meeting regulatory endpoints that you may not have any control over. But a lot of the investors I talked to just talked about how the general trend in um, biotechnology and health sciences is to become more data-driven. And if you look around, you'll see that information technologies like Google are now getting into health. They just hired the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Tom Insel. They hired a cardiologist from Harvard, Jessica Mega, to come and, and work for them. So, I think overall these companies are starting to think that if they use data analytics and technology that it might make biotech and health a less scary area to invest in.
0: That was reporter Erica
2: Check Hayden in the San Francisco office. Read her piece at nature.com/news. And new on our YouTube channel, the Misa Verde Mystery. An entire society disappeared from a region of Colorado hundreds of years ago, and no one knows why they left.
0: If you enjoy the show, you can always leave us a review on iTunes. Just search there for Nature Podcast. There are tons of archived episodes there as well. And you'll find them on our website, nature.com slash nature slash podcast. I'm Kerry Smith.
2: And I'm Adam Levy.